The first holiday season they spent together was also the crescendo in their relationship. Sometime around Christmas, Billy had gone down to Ohio to visit his mother and siblings. Unbeknownst to Mary Jane, who remained up in Chicago with her own family, he excitedly told his mother and sisters that he had met a nice girl, that he wanted to marry as soon as possible. The family was happy for Billy, happy that something was finally giving his life some meaning after having such a rough course up to that point. Before the new year was out, he returned to Chicago to reunite with Mary Jane. On New Year's Day, without any place to be except inside from the cold, Billy and Mary Jane got a room together at the Diversity Arms Hotel. They spent the afternoon eating, drinking, and talking together about whatever came to mind. Both of them were visibly nervous, not just because they were alone together in the hotel room, but because they genuinely felt that way about one another. As the afternoon progressed, Mary Jane got into bed, and for the first time, they slept together. By then, they had been together for close to six months. It wasn't as if there hadn't been any chemistry between them, or that they hadn't wanted to have sex. The moment had simply never presented itself in the right way. Beyond that, Billy had never pushed her, though he definitely talked about it. It was clear that their presence in each other's lives was about more than just a physical connection. They were trying to build something together. Those scarce moments together alone in the hotel room offered a glimpse of the life that they fantasized about. It was a euphoric moment, Mary Jane said of her first time. It wasn't just two kids having sex. It was something else. As they lay there holding each other, quiet tears began to run down Billy's face. Billy expressed regret, not for what they had just done, but rather for the path his life had taken up till then. He told me he'd made mistakes, Mary Jane said. He wished he had had a better life. Billy never told Mary Jane much about his time in jail or what had put him there. She knew he had gotten himself into trouble here and there over the years, but to what extent, she didn't know. Boys in the neighborhoods, no matter if they'd grown up in Uptown or Albany Park, where Mary Jane had lived, were always bumping up against other boys or their parents or even the police. And she didn't care. The boy next to her in bed was good enough for her, even if he didn't think himself to be. He was afraid of losing her, afraid that one day she might suddenly think that there was something better out there for her, or that he was preventing her own life from moving forward in a way that gave her meaning and joy. But the truth was, Billy gave her both. Mary Jane did her best to comfort Billy. In the dim hotel room, he was more vulnerable than she'd ever seen him. He'd never shed tears in front of her before. Out in the streets, in the neighborhood he'd grown up in, he'd been tough and in control. Not just in front of her, but also in front of old friends from Kenmore Avenue, where every day he'd battle against the weight of the world. He was so desperate for a break, for a light to shine on him and reveal a path. Along that path, there was a ring, a wedding, a house they could fill with children. Together, they would be a family, this fantasy life suspended so briefly within the four walls of their hotel room. Later in the day, after she'd done her best to reassure Billy that nothing was going to change how she felt about him, they left the hotel room to return home in the snow. Billy walked her to the bus stop, where he waited with her. When the bus arrived, they said goodbye, and she rode north to home. 
leaving him behind. But even as the bus took her away, Mary Jane had already begun to feel closer to Billy than she ever had before, more certain that this was the person she was supposed to be with. She was ready for what she thought would come next. The break Billy Kindred had been waiting for finally came in February, just two months after the Diversity Arms, when they told each other things about themselves that would lock them together intimately and in some ways permanently. Mary Jane was at home that winter evening with plans to meet up with Billy later on when he called to give her some good news. He and his friend Gerald had met a man, a contractor, who was interested in hiring them both to work for a company ran out of his house. Billy never said his name, but they were going to talk with him. I'm hearing how excited he was, Mary Jane remembered of the call. Before they said goodbye, Billy promised he'd be over to see her soon. They hung up. As the night grew later, Billy had still not arrived, and he hadn't called to update her either. Other friends had even stopped by and agreed that it was odd that he hadn't gotten in touch. She called his apartment, but there was no answer. Honest to God, I feel like I knew something that night, she said, noting that she was more worried than angry that Billy hadn't shown. I knew something was up that night. She struggled to fall asleep, knowing that her boyfriend was somewhere out in that cold February night. Mary Jane was not to be underestimated. Even in her teenage years, she'd become a tenacious and feisty young woman, unafraid to seek out what she wanted, what she needed. At one point in her life, she tracked down her own biological father, simply so she could sit across from him in a diner and try to know who he was. And so, as she struggled to get some sleep that night, it was clear that the same drive inside her would lead her all over Chicago all over the country if she must, to find out what had become of her boyfriend, Billy Kindred, the kind-hearted boy whom she had been so sure she would spend the rest of her life with. Those excerpts came from the outstanding new book called Boys Enter the House by our friend and author David Nelson. That young man was Billy Kindred, born July 14, 1958, and the Thief of Lives took Billy's away from him on February 16th of 1978. Welcome to Defense Diaries. I'm your host, Bob Mata, and this is episode 27. The devil is in the details. Last we checked in, the creep was sitting at counsel's table in Judge Fitzgerald's courtroom in the Leighton Criminal Courthouse at 26 and Cal. His lawyers have been trying to get the court to halt the search, or demolition rather, over at 8213 Somerdale. The defense had filed a battery of motions, and the state is looking to respond, and also looking to keep digging at Gacy's property. The judge has taken advantage of the forced break in the dig at Gacy's because of inclement weather to avoid having to decide any of the substantive motions that have been filed by the defense. 
He wanted those issues to be decided by whomever was going to be presiding over the case so that there was a clean record for potential appeals. They can take it, John, because they have the power of the state. Whether or not they're going to be able to connect it is the question. Same thing with the destruction of the house. You know, they're going ahead like a bull in a china well, shop. They seized everything. Because the there. bodies have been found in my house. How do you know they weren't murdered somewhere else and brought there? They're convicting you and they're punishing you by coming at you at your personal property, your house, real estate. They're stripping you of every vestige of a citizen. I think they're making a mistake in their approach to it. But I think that the reason they're doing it is because they don't well, know what the hell they're doing. They're trying to dehumanize them, as far as I'm concerned. The, uh, legally, it doesn't appear that they can keep at least two of those vehicles. Nor can they continue the destruction of the house or say that now it's unsafe because they've made it unsafe. And if they continue to chip away at it with the bricks and the structure during the pendency of, of this petition they have to raise the house, they're further uh, harming their position. In addition to that, we're going to have our experts in there if they still continue to go that way. Well, they are. Like I say, we're done yeah. But all of this is without uh, outside the limits of the law of what they're doing. I mean, they're subjecting themselves to civil suits, and that's why they're going in these directions. Well, they don't you know, really fuck the civil suit part. <coughs> you know, and I, of course, I only heard of how you guys explain the search warrant when we went and addressed mm -hmm. them on the search warrant. Okay, a search warrant gives them evidently unlimited destruction rights. Absolutely not. You know it doesn't from listening to me. Well, the thing of it is, is that that's what's happening. They're going beyond that. And all I mean, we can do is then go in again to Garippo and say, I think we better redefine the parameters of where they can go on the search for it. Okay, now, can they destroy, uh, take the brick cell? How do, how do you go about it? What, or, I, maybe, maybe I'm being facetious, but then why the hell hasn't it been done already? Why haven't they been able to be Because until this thing came up with the house, with, with wanting to raise the house, we assumed that they were going to just start digging up the front the you know, and leave the shell there. Then they came up with this, so that's, you take things as they come. I don't want to jump on their merry-go-round with them. I want to take one thing as it goes by. Well, yeah, grab okay. the ring as the, the merry-go-round comes around. And I then work on it, especially with the civil things. Now, over at 26 and Cal, you have some of the most experienced and knowledgeable judges in the state in that they had pretty much seen and heard it all, because after all, that's where all the serious felonies that occur in Chicago are heard. In a case like People versus Gacy, as we've already established, everybody in the legal profession wants to be involved, if possible, and judges are no exception. However, in a case like this one, it has to be the right judge, as there will be a myriad of issues that must be dealt with that only occur within cases that are high profile. A judge can easily be overwhelmed by the stress and impact on their docket that an all-consuming case like this can produce. 
This holds true not only for the judge involved with the case, but also with the lawyers. For example, once this case landed on Bill Kunkel's desk, it would pretty much be the only matter that he would be able to handle despite his bulging pre-existing caseload. It's just the nature of the beast. As for the defense, the same thing applies, except it's even more daunting as most private attorneys do not come from huge firms, wherein they will have somebody there to back them up to pick up the slack while that attorney's time is being gobbled up by the big case. Such was the case for my father and Amaranti. As a matter of fact, my father had just recently hung his own shingle after years at the public defender's office when the Gacy case broke. The concept of taking Gacy on was daunting as he was well aware that it would swallow his practice up whole and further take him away from his family for the better part of a year. When a lawyer in private practice takes on a case like this, by necessity, they, for the most part, have to stop taking on new cases as they just won't have the time to adequately represent their new clients. And no new clients means no money coming into the practice. This creates a whole additional level of pressure on any attorney taking a case of this ilk. Because as my father told me, when I decided to go into private practice, it's a feast or famine business. No one is paying you weekly. You are making your own money. So anyone in private practice, especially in the criminal side of it, has to hustle to make a living. And that's a fact. My dad knew this going in and it made him extremely anxious right from the jump. Back to the selection of the judge. Now, typically judges are selected automatically nowadays by a computer program that randomly selects a judge or by something they call a wheel, which is kind of like the wheel of fortune in that it has the judge's names on it as opposed to dollar amounts. And they give that a spin and boom, whoever it lands on, that's who's assigned to the case. Now, they didn't do this in the Gacy case. There was way too much at stake, and the case was the most sought-after assignment in the history of Illinois jurisprudence. Let's see what Bill Kunkel recalls about the selection of the judge. In in cases like that, in that time, you know, uh, particularly with Richard Fitzgerald, everybody on both sides always respected uh, Richard Fitzgerald. I mean, he was, there was the famous quote, uh, from F. Lee Bailey, uh, who was part of the defense team on a murder case in front of him from the suburbs that uh, got a lot of press coverage and a lot of ink, uh, the Silas Jane thing. And uh, uh, Bailey had uh, signed a courtroom sketch of uh, himself and Fitz or something, I don't know, I remember, but whatever picture he had, I don't know. But he signed something uh, that Fitz had framed in, a, in his courtroom, and what he said was, and what was quoted in some of the major news magazines as well as the, the newspapers at the time, uh, was that uh, he had given any number of complaints, uh, complaints, I should say, compliments uh, to Richard Fitz earlier in the article, and then uh, his closer and the one that was quoted by everyone, and it was written uh, with his signature on this particular uh, courtroom sketch was that uh, Chief Judge Richard Fitzgerald, what God would look like if God were a judge. So that, you know, nobody messed with Richard Fitz much. And so he was going to make the decision, and he was going to assign it to someone that he felt could competently handle the matter. It wouldn't be done by some computer or 
some random assignment wheel because it was too important. It needed to be done by someone that had the experience and the demeanor and the ability to handle the media, handle the case, handle the lawyers, uh, et cetera. And so, you know, it became known around the building that, uh, that basically he had told three judges uh, that uh, they were the finalists, so to speak. Uh, and the reason he did that is he wanted to make it clear to them that they needed to think about it themselves and let him know the next day uh, whether they were in or out, whether they felt they uh, could take the time off their regular call, or et cetera, et cetera, or had any personal reasons they felt they couldn't get involved in it, and so forth. And those three judges were uh, obviously Louis Scarippo and James Bailey and Earl Strayhorn. Uh, now, those three picks were all uh, uh, absolutely approved by me, not that anyone would have cared. But uh, uh, I was the trial courtroom assistant public defender, and in those days there was only one in a, in a felony trial courtroom. So I was Bailey's public defender for almost two full years before I went with the state and uh, tried every type of case in front of him and knew him very, very well. And then uh, Judge Garippo, I had second-chaired Bill Murphy, a very prominent uh, public defender, later the head of the murder task force, and a, and a terrific lawyer and a, and a dear friend of mine. And we played more than a little football together in Lincoln Park for 15 years and probably six different softball leagues all over the county. But anyway, uh, Murph uh, and I uh, had tried a murder case in front of Garippo, uh, he was the first chair, I was the second chair, but it was my first murder uh, uh, as a public defender. And then, uh, and I got to know him, and I got to know Lou, and and then uh, Earl Strayhorn, when I got transferred to the state's attorney's office, I was his felony trial assistant. That was my first uh, assignment and only assignment, permanent assignment in the trial courts. I tried a lot of specials after that, but uh, as a permanent assignment, I was always Judge Strayhorn's public defender, and he was, a, to me, a fantastic judge and a great human being. And so, to me, there were probably the three judges out there at the time, other than Richard Fitzgerald himself, that I knew the best, that I had experience with, and uh, and would have been perfectly happy to try the case in front of. So... Uh, in fact, for years and years, when I was doing my presentation and my uh, PowerPoint program for different law enforcement groups and so forth, I always uh, gave Judge Garippo credit for coming up with the concept of uh, uh, picking the jury in Rockford, Illinois, in another county uh, after granting the defense motion for a change of venue, and then uh, bringing that jury back to Cook County and having them sworn in here and trying the case here. Uh, they were going to be locked up in a hotel anyway, based on the defense's already filed and granted motion for sequestration. Uh, so, and that was a technique that was immediately adopted and accepted by the Illinois Supreme Court and every other court that's ever looked at it. It's being done all over the place now. And uh, it was all uh, Judge Garippo. But uh, it turns out that Lou told me. Uh, one of the times I was visiting him, not long before he died, actually, that uh, 
Actually, that was Bailey's idea. But what had happened is Strayhorn, Bailey, and, and Garippo uh, started having uh, lunch together and meeting after work together uh, immediately once they knew they were all in consideration for the case uh, to talk out the issues between themselves and what, you know, different ideas for what to do. And in fact, it was Judge Jim Bailey, uh, recently uh, deceased, who came up with the idea of picking the jury uh, somewhere else and bringing them to Cook County. So actually two of the three wound up contributing to the case. Obviously, Garepo, uh substantially more on a day-to-day basis, but Bailey was a tremendous uh, insight and idea. They didn't have anything to do with the choice. Uh, that was all up to Richard Fitzgerald. Uh, they were just the three... They knew they were the three contenders. Yeah, he had uh, several conversations with all of them, I'm sure. Individually, I'm sure, as well. He wanted to make sure that they were willing to do it if necessary, and etc. So, Louis Garibbo is the guy, and he appears to be the perfect fit for many reasons, especially because the case wouldn't be too big for him to handle. Now, for both the defense and the state, whatever judge is assigned to the case matters. And that's because judges can be one of three things, either state-oriented, defense-oriented, or middle-of-the-road, which, in theory, is what they are all supposed to be. However, that is simply not reality, as judges are, of course, human beings, not robots. And whatever path they took to get to the bench typically the way they lean in terms of rulings. What does this mean? Well, it means that if a judge got out of law school and went directly into the state's attorney's office, they will by default lean towards the state in a close call and vice versa. Which way the judge leans in his rulings is of primary importance during the motion phase of cases because unlike a trial, when a case can be tried by a jury of your peers, and they serve as the fact finder, every decision made prior to the verdict in a criminal case is made by the judge. Now, in Illinois, as a matter of law, each side has one SOJ, or substitution of judge, available in their hip pocket, meaning that after a judge is assigned to the case, the lawyers for the defense or the state can file a motion to substitute the judge without having to give a reason within 10 days of the assignment or before any substantive ruling is made by the judge in that case, whichever one comes first. It's a very useful tool because as an attorney practices in a particular county for an extended period of time, they get to know how that judge leans. If the judge never grants suppression motions to the defense, like never, a defense attorney will most likely want to SOJ that judge and take their chances with a new judge. Now, you may end up getting another shitty draw, but it's typically worth the risk if you've gotten a judge you know to be tough on defense attorneys. Now, with Louis Garippo getting the assignment on Gacy, neither Kunkel nor the defense felt the need to file for an SOJ. And that was because he was the right judge for the case. He had been part of the Richard Speck prosecution team and was extremely familiar with some of the issues that had presented themselves in that case and which were expected to arise again in the Gacy case. Now, if you're not familiar with Speck, he was another serial killer from the mid-60s that was a very high-profile case. Back on July 13th of 1966, Speck had broken into a townhouse, 
which was being used as a dormitory to house student nurses with the intent on burglarizing it. What ended up happening on that horrific night is that by 6 a.m., Speck had murdered eight young women, one by one, in 20 to 30-minute intervals, either by strangling them or slashing their throats. As Speck had left fingerprints all over the scene and seeing that he was a career criminal, his fingerprints were in the system. So he was arrested within two days of the offense. Now in that case, as in the Gacy case, the insanity defense was employed and it was also a death penalty case, which both present their own unique challenges to the lawyers and to the judge. And seeing that Garippo had intimately been involved in the Speck case and was well aware of how the issues involved with the insanity defense were handled, Garippo seemed to be the perfect fit for the Creeps case. It's a, this is a very interesting, uh, interest, at least to me, uh, uh, important and interesting aspect of uh, history and, uh, and this case. The Speck case was handled as the first chair trial lawyer in, in the state's attorney's office by Bill Martin. And I don't know if you knew Bill before he died, but he was a brilliant uh, criminal defense lawyer uh, and also an excellent uh, prosecutor in the state's attorney's office. At the time, Bill Martin was assigned to be the lead prosecutor, or as we always said at 26th Street, the first chair in the spec prosecution. Lou Garippo was at the beginning the chief of the, of the criminal division in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. So he was directly involved in making that appointment and acting as, uh, along with the chief of the felony trial division, as the two people immediately supervising, uh, granting the requests or denying requests by Martin and the staff, uh, you know, for outrageous at the time amounts of money and special help uh, to, to handle that extremely difficult case uh, uh, to protect and house and uh, keep happy Corazana Murrow to uh, uh, have uh, an architecture school build a phenomenal model of the uh, of the townhouse uh, so you could look into each bedroom and uh, see, see the pattern of where he was going and why the fingerprints on such and such a door were important and so forth. And lots and lots of unanticipated uh, expenses and, and duties that uh, were unique at that time. And by the time the case actually went to trial, because of the changes upstairs in the office, uh, he was then the first assistant state's attorney, meaning Lou Garoppolo. Uh, when by the time the verdict came down, so he knew pretty much everything there was to know about the uh, the spec prosecution. Uh, obviously, uh, obviously, of course, as well as Bill Martin. Now it turns out Bill Martin was my personal favorite instructor at Northwestern Law School, and of course called Criminal Evidence Seminar, and. Uh, you know, I loved him, and uh, he was a great mentor to me in my career, uh, you know, literally until uh, weeks before he died. Uh, we would be discussing uh, cases and issues, and uh, a brilliant prosecutor, and uh, all of the big issues in terms of the insanity defense potential, in terms of uh, 
motion to sequester, a motion for change of venue. You know, all these things came up in the spec case. And Lou Garippo, uh, when he came up with, with Bailey's help, uh, solutions to those issues uh, that he felt could be done even better than they were done in spec, and I, I agree with him, uh, put those things together in uh, a prosecution of 33 murders in a single case. I don't think there's another judge in the country that could have tried that case any better than Lou Garippo. Uh, those big serial killer cases throughout the country uh, many times wound up being retried at least once. Uh, and here was a case of 33 of them in one uh, seven-week trial, six- or seven-week trial, uh, and not a single issue that, on appeal that ever resulted in any relief whatsoever for John Gacy, even though it took 14 years to finish it. So that whole happenstance of history that uh, made Speck and Garoppo my mentors and made Garoppo intimately aware with the, the big issues of Speck and different ways to solve them, which he applied in Gacy, uh, was just a phenomenal uh, and very beneficial, in my view, for the people of the state of Illinois uh, uh, confluence uh, in history. So at this juncture on January 10th of 1979, all of the pieces were in place for the case of the people of the state of Illinois versus John Wayne Gacy to move forward full steam ahead. Meanwhile, out on the streets, investigators for the Cook County Sheriff's Police are canvassing both the North Side and suburban nightclubs that were included in a list that the creep had prepared of spots that he had frequented in order to talk to witnesses in an attempt to identify remaining victims. Investigator Greg Badeau and other Cook County Sheriff's investigators are concentrating on the neighborhoods of Old Town, New Town, and the Northwest Side. The investigators are promising anonymity to tipsters in order to encourage them to come forward. The hope is that these tipsters will come forward with information that they had seen Gacy with certain individuals, and now those individuals are missing. Simultaneous to this happening, the hotline that had been established to help identify missing persons that may have been in and around Chicagoland within the last few years has gone silent. An operator that works for the 24-hour tip line told a reporter from the Associated Press that no one that has called the hotline has mentioned Gacy by name. This hotline is serving two purposes. First, for families and friends to call and report an individual missing, but also it's available to runaways that are alive and well to relay that information to relatives that may call in in order to reassure them that their child is okay. Either way, after an early flood of calls right after Gacy was arrested, the calls about Gacy have mysteriously stopped coming in completely making the near-impossible task of identifying the skeletal remains from Gacy's crawl all that much more difficult. So while many of the investigators are out canvassing drinking establishments in the search for the identities of the creep's victims, others are still searching for a known victim of Gacy, that being Robbie Peast, 
And they, much like Kozenzak, are coming up empty. Now remember that law enforcement has been focusing on the river system of Illinois and trying to locate Rob's body. And this was done primarily because that's where Gacy said he disposed of the body. Now, we all know what a compulsive liar Gacy is. Is it possible that he has law enforcement running around on a wild goose chase, sitting back in his cell chuckling to himself about what stupid assholes the cops are? Maybe. The cops are starting to believe that Peace's body is buried somewhere as opposed to floating in a river. Two different known facts are leading them to this conclusion. One was that on the first night that Gacy was called into the police station, the day after Peace went missing, he shows up at three in the morning with his pants and shoes covered in mud. And two, his Oldsmobile, which was confiscated as a part of the search on December 13th, was also caked in mud. Where is Rob Peace's body? It's not easy to vanish a body. And Gacy certainly had two MOs for disposing of his victims, the crawl space and the river. And those have both come up zeros. That mystery shall continue. The media, meanwhile, continues its full court press as to everything Gacy. Not a day passes without the creep being front page and lead story news. The existing gag order, of course, cannot strip the press of its First Amendment freedom of speech rights, as it applies only to those that are connected to the case. But the press is getting their intel from someone or from multiple people, most likely the cops and for certain, Dr. Stein. Everyone wants to tell the secrets they know. The problem with that is that the more they spill, the likelihood of being able to impanel an unbiased jury, not just in Chicago, but anywhere, becomes more and more unlikely. Back at 26 and Cal, with Louis Garippo now fully entrenched as the trial judge who will preside over the case of the century, the lawyers from both the state and defense have their first opportunity to brief the judge as to what has been happening so far in the case, procedurally, that is. Garippo tables all of the motions that have been filed by the defense to a future date. And despite the fact that Chief Judge Fitzgerald had ruled on the cease and desist request made by the defense as to the demolition that's going on over at 8213 Somerdale, Garippo wants his position on that particular matter heard by both sides loud and clear. After a brief argument from both Amaranti and Kunkel, Garippo tells both sides that with respect to the search warrant issue that both sides are bickering about, okay, all right, here's the thing. Defense, your motions are on file. The state is therefore on notice of your complaint. They proceed, I should say, at their own risk. They proceed knowing about your objections. So I'll withhold ruling on this until such time as you have an opportunity to go over the search warrants that will be furnished to you today, okay? What Garippo does here is brilliant. Without making any kind of ruling, he tells the state, look, you can continue to tear down that house and dig up his entire yard, but you do it at your own peril. Because if I find the defense is correct and that the warrants that you are currently operating under are not in fact valid, you run the very real risk of having everything that you've uncovered, evidence-wise, of being suppressed. Garippo also sounds off on the protective order or gag order, 
once again, he's given a brief argument by both sides as to what is happening out on the streets with the press and how it potentially is affecting the creeps' right to receive a fair trial, after which time Garibo states, I do realize that with respect to Dr. Stein, he has to run a very narrow line because I assume that he still has the obligation to try and give enough information to the public in order to identify persons, and yet he has to be careful not to say anything prejudicial, like he is saying because he has an orderly graveyard and could receive the death penalty to the rights of the defendant. So there is a very narrow line. Now, Judge Garippo then ends the proceedings for January 10th, and he sets it for hearing on the pending motions for January 30th of 1979. Now, what becomes incredibly evident immediately is that Garippo is the right person for the job. The Gacy case is not too big for him to handle. He seamlessly dealt with the outstanding issues with tact and precision, and it took him less than 10 minutes to get up to speed as to what was going on with the case. When you think about judges that have handled huge criminal cases in American history, and specifically judges that were simply not up to the task, I immediately think of Judge Ito in the O.J. Simpson case. For those of you too young to remember it, watch the American Crime Story on FX about it. It was excellent. I have never seen a judge lose control of a courtroom and the lawyers in a case of that magnitude like he did in my entire life. The lawyers ran roughshod over him. He had zero ability to control what was happening in that courtroom. And what is abundantly clear here is that that is not happening. Not in this case, not with this judge. Garippo was a jurist that commanded the respect of the attorneys arguing in front of him, and he got it from both sides. Garippo was going to run this show, and he was not letting it turn into a circus under any circumstances. And that benefits everyone involved, from the people trying the case, to the people of the state of Illinois, and most importantly, to the victims' families. So the stage is set. All the players are in place. It's showtime, folks. And the creep and his life are center stage. Let's get into it on the next episode of Defense Diaries. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't give credit where credit is due. To my friend and my executive producer extraordinaire, Darren Wood. Thank you, D, for making it all come together. To Taras and Ryan Gack for your haunting and beautiful music that sets the scene for every episode. To Alex Carver and Corey Ridings that give our podcast something to look at. To Allison Mata, who makes everything behind the scenes happen to our wonderful sponsors that help us keep the show going, and to our network, Cloud 10 and iHeartRadio. Thanks for having faith in the pod. And finally, to our beautiful patrons, who I know some of you are owed goodies, and we got you, I promise. And finally, finally, to all of you, our faithful listeners, thank you, because without y'all, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Talking to you next time. Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Appreciate you. Friendly reminder to follow, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts and whatever platform you listen on, if possible. Also, follow us on Meta and Instagram at Defense Diaries and on Twitter at Defense underscore Diaries. 
and also on TikTok at Defense Diaries Podcast. So make sure you check it out. Okay, Rena, where the body's at? No, exactly where the body's at.